Welcome, people. Welcome, everybody out there to another uh, session of uh, Simon Says, although hopefully it's Simon asking more questions and talking. Uh, we are uh, ingratiated with sporting royalty uh, today. We and if I, if I start to read out all their accomplishments, we will not have enough time to talk to them. So I'll just touch on a couple here. We've got the, the wonderful uh, Kirsty Marshall OAM, which is very important to say you've got that, uh, aerial skier and Victorian previous Victorian state politician, over 40 World Cup medals, including 17 gold medals, uh, just could go through winter games, could go through gold. Well, just there's a lot there. And joining, uh, uh, Kirsty, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. And joining her, now this bloke, as I said, I'll introduce him as Paul Ruse, but we all call him Rusey. 356 games with Fitzroy and Sydney, state captain, Fitzroy captain, Hall of Fame, best and fairest, multiple best and fairest winner. Of course, a, a premiership coach with the Sydney Swans. And uh, uh, welcome, Ruzi. Welcome, Paul Ruse. How are you, Ruzi? Uh, how are you, mate? Good to see you. Good to see it. Now, it's um, now, Kirsty, how you been? Now, you're, you, are you, uh, you are still based in Melbourne? I am based in Melbourne. So, how have you been coping with all this lockdown and how have you come out of it? Now, we seem to have a little bit of a, uh, a normality about us almost. I've really enjoyed it. It sounds terrible to say, but I've got uh, one 15-year-old and one 17-year-old, so one in year nine, one in year 12. And the year nine didn't love it particularly, but what we did all enjoy was spending time together and sort yes. of regrouping as a family. And uh, it's just been blissful. The house has, is just so peaceful. So I think that for me, um, it was, it's just been an enjoyable time. Although during that time, I had a full knee replacement. So uh, um, that, that certainly uh, threw a little bit of a spanner in the works. But again, because of being able to work remotely, I could continue to work, even though I was sort of bed-bound for quite a few weeks. Well, maybe that, that uh, I suppose um, you're just adding to Victoria as the knee capital of the world. So with netball, football and aerial skiing, that's a, there's a fair few knees being done over the years. And it's, it's finally caught up with you, has it? Yeah, I'd already had 15 knee operations. I'd had three... Uh, only, only 15. <laughs> three recons, two on the left, one on the right. And um, I'd had the rest of them scopes. I'd had, <clears throat> excuse me, a series of Synvisc. I'd had Cartrophin. I had stem cell replacement. Wow. Um, and it just got to the point where I, I couldn't really walk. I, I was dragging a bit of a dead leg around. So uh. I did a full knee replacement. But um, unfortunately, two days after the operation, they found a 20-centimetre DVT in my calf. And oh, two days after deep, that, For those who don't know, deep vein thrombosis. Yes. Very, very dangerous clot, um, mm. which then they, I couldn't then move, but I, I continued not to feel well. So they sent me for some more scans and they found five of my lung chambers had um, pulmonary embolisms in them. So between the two things there, I think I dodged a bullet, but I was then... I was going to say, for someone who was near death, you're looking pretty good. <laughs> yeah, look, I was really, um, I wasn't very well. And I, I lay in bed. I couldn't, I, I was in hospital. I had to stay in hospital. And this was in July and August. So I was six weeks um, completely bed bound. And I need to get up to go to the toilet. Yeah. And COVID was, was, you know, numbers were flying up. And in the end, I discharged myself out of hospital because I was just so concerned with um, what was going on. I yeah. felt safe at home. So then I continued my, my rehab at home. But, yeah, it wasn't a fun time, that side of it. But, yeah, the family together. That's good. Well, I'm glad, yeah. you've come, glad you're coming out the other side very well. Now, now, Rusey, for you, where are you at the moment? You're not in Melbourne as far as I know. Yeah, so it's been a little bit different for me. So we... we endured the lockdown as most people did in Victoria. And then Tammy's family, my wife's from America. So dad, dad got a bit crook. And so we got the exemption to get out of, 
um, Victoria, get out of Australia to, to visit uh, family. So seeing it from different perspectives. So we got to California, caught up with Tammy's dad. So he's thankfully a lot better now and healthy, which is great. Mm. And then we made our way to Hawaii. I've got a house in Hawaii. So we've, yeah, so we got to see, yeah, different sides of it, what's happening in Australia. And then obviously what's happening in Melbourne, um, in America. And that's been, yeah, very, very unique experience. And Ruth, very, you, sorry, I was just going to ask, is it just you and Tammy there at the moment in Hawaii? You've got others staying with you. Um, originally, it's been a crazy year, as we all know. So my, my younger son was travelling. So he'd finished his uni degree and he had a big year of travel. He got sort of in Mexico and we were ringing him in March saying, look, this is what's happening and you better get out. So he eventually made his way to the house, which was really good, and stayed here for about five months with a friend that he was travelling with. My other son just moved over to America um, about uh, three months ago. So he was here as well. So it's been a, a sort of shifting year for the, for the Roos family. So Dylan's up at Lake Tahoe at the moment. Tammy and I are here by ourselves. And we're about to go back to California just to visit Tammy's mum and dad again. That's good. Right? Well, let's look, you know, if you become a premiership coach, you get a house in Hawaii. I'm at our little place down in Rye, just, you know, escaping Melbourne a little bit there. So that's great. So I think you know, the funny thing is, Simon, the, the interesting thing was it, we came here in a pre-season camp in 1984. So the Fitzroy players, and that was really unusual. So Chris Jones was our fitness guy. I was, I was pretty young, 20 years of age, and they had this idea of January 1984, a pre-season, in-season camp. Yeah, so we came here back in 1984, and my house is now probably about a kilometre and a half from the hotel we stayed at back in 1984. And it, it's really weird because I remember, I mean, it hasn't changed dramatically since then, but I just remember training on the field and, and, and going, for, going to the gym and staying at this hotel. And it's sort of so strange to, to come full circle and have a place about a kilometre and a half where I was as a 20-year-old. It's weird. What? That's, that's great, man. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a nice little segue because you've both, I just, you know, you've said, um, Ruzi, you, you've, you've married, you married, married a, uh, someone from the United States, um, Tammy, and so originally from San Diego, is that right? We met in San Diego. Um, she, she's from about 50 miles south of San Francisco, but she's going to San Diego State College, and that's where we met. Yeah, and then, of course, and of course Kirsty, you've uh, spent so much time overseas as a sports person. Um, just that whole idea of being elsewhere for a lot of the year, year for you while you're a sports person, how was that? Yeah, I remember my parents always were worried I was going to meet somebody overseas and move over there. And the more I travelled, the more I liked Australia and Australians. So um, I, I did particularly love being in Canada and uh, spent a bit of time over there. I could pro probably live there. But um, I, I'm thinking about when I was looking at buying a place um, initially when I was younger. The one place I would never have bought one was probably up on the mountains because I figured we were going to lose the snow up there. So yeah. I'd end up not being able to even ski. But, um, no, I'm pretty, pretty happy being in Melbourne. I really, it's a beautiful place and I'm very happy to um, be out, particularly over in Gippsland where you've sort of got the mountains and the sea and everything in between. It's just a gorgeous part of the world. Yeah, now, so, so in that, talking about mountains, of course, skiing. You started skiing about four, is that right? I mean, I, I think I started skiing about 14 or 15 like, you know, and fell off very quickly and didn't like it. But you were right into it very early. Yeah, I got into it a little bit early with my, my parents. My father, neither of my um, parents skied as young people at all. Um, my father got into it because he was a builder and he had been asked to do a summer build on a ski lodge and the snow came early and they needed someone to stay there for lock-up. 
And so he put his hand up and he had nothing else to do but mind the, the semi-built lodge and learned how to ski in his sort of late 20s. But I started skiing with the family for a couple of years, but then I got into gymnastics. And once I got into gymnastics, I didn't ski. So I, I skied, I think, from about four till seven. And then I picked it up again at, uh, I was 15. So um, a late starter in that sense. And of course, you combine both of those from the gymnastics and the skiing into aerial skiing, which was really, um, it was really developing sport when you started, wasn't it? Like in your era, it became from sort of something people were interested in to an actually full-fledged international sport. Yeah, and Marisi, when you're talking about that 84 and training camps and being some, you know, that is one of the things that football's always done so well is that they're cutting edge in terms of, um, you know, I, I think even the Indigenous involvement and taking it from the VFL out to the AFL and you know, those sorts of things, whereas for me in a sport that was completely underdeveloped, and traditionally what they did is they had skiers who they taught to be acrobats, mm. which was a convoluted way to do it because it's much easier to teach a 20-year-old or a 15-year-old how to ski than how to teach a 20-year-old how to do a somersault. It's almost yeah. impossible. So I had the gift of having done the gymnastics, came in and picked up skiing really quickly because I'd had that really early stuff. And probably mm. at that age of 15, 16, you think you're invincible anyway. And anytime somebody, you know, uses the word dare, whether it be, you know, in a, at a bar or on a ski hill, you're like, I'm in. So um, somebody literally dared me to take my first jump. And um, nowadays they do a thousand jumps into water, yes. precautionary and all this, you know, it's such a long training session that it takes, I would think about a year from start to the first time you jump on snow. Well, I saw the sport on the Saturday and I did my first back somersault on the Sunday. So um, I was just really lucky. I was, I was in the right place at the right time. And given the lack of technology in my sport, <clears throat> it really meant that it was carte blanche. You know, you could do whatever you wanted. And I had a team of guys, Team Ball, the original team um, up at Mount Ball was only men. And uh, they were just so supportive. And that's one of the reasons I've always credited them with my success because there was no gender issues. And we didn't jump off different jumps. We didn't train at different times. Um, and when you give the, any athlete the opportunity to flourish like that, they usually do. And, and you did actually spend a bit of time, development time from what I, what, I've tried to do research. You're in Japan, you're in Japan for a while in your development time as well. Well, it's, that was an interesting, I, I had skied in the national championships um, when I was 16 and 17. My first year I finished second and my second year I won. And on my second year at the national championship, this is in aerial skiing, there was a Japanese crew there and one of the guys, Takeo Yokoyama, was a World Cup skier, but he was getting towards that retirement age and was trying to think about transitioning into coaching. But there were no new athletes coming up in Japan and all of a sudden he saw me and he thought that's a great opportunity. And he had then organised a scholarship, basically, for me to go to Japan, live at a ski resort, and he was going to train me. Um, and it just seemed like the most ideal opportunity. So I, at 17, I took off, um, went to Japan, lived there for the next 18 months, and that's how I really learnt the sport. Right, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And as I said, it's really in that developmental stage. And Rosie, now, um, was there something about this that was going to show you the future where you actually played in East Onvale for a footy club called Beverly Hills? I actually didn't know that one existed. So that was, that was going to point you in the right direction for later. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, where I've ended up, not in, not in Beverly Hills, but somewhere in America. But yeah, I did. I played for a junior footy club called Beverly Hills Junior Footy Club, which was sort of in... 
more Blackburn. There was a Beverly Hills Primary School and a and just the Beverly Hills footy ground. So that, that's where I started. And for some reason, the, the closest ground to where we were was Donvale. But Donvale played on a Saturday and I was playing basketball and tennis on a Saturday. So we ended up, my parents took me to the Sunday, took me to the to Beverly Hills. Um, and that's where it all started for me. But can I reflect on some skiing, Simon? Because yeah, please, go for your life. I went to Mount... I, the worst day of my life was learning how to ski. <laughs> by far... The worst day of my life. So I'm, glad, I'm glad my name wasn't in that sentence. Uh, that's no, good. I'm no, glad no, you're no. talking so, about overcoming yeah. obstacles. Overcoming obstacles, that's very good. And, and you know how arrogant us footballers are, Simon. We think we can do absolutely yeah. that, so, especially, especially when you're younger. Again, you know, um, Kirsty said, you know, we're bulletproof. When we're young, we really think we are, oh, don't we? So I'm, I'm about 25 and the ski season goes a little bit longer and fits right the way they were going when I was about 25, 26. We weren't playing in finals, <laughs> I can assure you. So a mate of mine, Brett Stevens, says, do you want to come up to Mount Buller and we'll go skiing? I'm going, well, how hard can that be? That, that, sounds, that sounds pretty easy. So I was working in real estate at the time and I, I had to get this, the weekend off. So I said to my, my um, boss, I said, oh, mate, do you mind if I go snow skiing? He goes, yeah, no, do you want to borrow some gear? Me, no, nothing, nothing about skiing, nothing. I said, yeah, no, what do you got? He goes, oh, I've got some skis and some boots and, you know, some gear. I said, oh, it saved me from renting it, so no, no problems. So I, I go up to Mount Buller. I literally cursed you. I get on the first lift to go up the thing, and Steve-O looks down at my skis and goes, what the hell have you got on? And I said, <laughs> I said mate, I've got skis. What do you mean? He goes, how long are they? I said, oh, I, I don't know. I think they're 210 centimetres. So 210 centimetre racing skis that I borrowed. <laughs> that I borrowed. Now, now Kirsty, I didn't have a gymnastics background, but I can assure you I tried some double somersaults that day. Um, there was some backflips. There were some face plants. It was the worst day of my life. And Brett Stevens is the least patient guy you could ever go to. So we get up that first little lift. We jump off and I, I go, what do you want me to do? He goes, oh, just go down there. And this takes off. So then, oh, right. I, was nearly in, I was nearly in tears the first day. Have you ever seen, I'm gonna, <laughs> have you ever seen blood on the snow, Simon? Yeah, I think I have. <laughs> it is. It looks like someone's been murdered. So I did yes. a face plane oh, no. and I smashed my nose and oh, there's blood no. Everywhere yeah. on the snow, and as you know, the nose the nose just goes everywhere very quickly. Oh, mate, it looked like someone had been shot. Seriously, so that was my that was my first experience. But but thankfully, I, I actually it is an unbelievable sport, Kirsty. And I've been really fortunate to go heli skiing, which is one of the wow. most. So oh, how's just, that? You've done something. You've done something I have never done. Yeah, really. Oh, yeah, look, I would love to have done that. So that take, they take you up as high as they can in the helicopter, they put you down, and then you've got to get down yourself. Is that oh, right? Yeah, it's, mate, it's it unbelievable. So yeah. it's basically, you're usually above the tree line, so it's wow. just snow. Yeah, just snow. Um, because you're getting dropped in, nobody else has got ski tracks that you have to work your way across. And it's normally in a spot because of the, the businesses it, that the snow is of great quality. So it's an amazing opportunity. Very few people get to do that. Yeah, well, yeah we were at the, bugger, the Bugaboo Lodge in Canada. So, and yeah. Simon, so they take you up on the helicopter to the lodge. So you're actually, the only way you can get to the lodge is by helicopter. And then, wow. as Kirsty said, so what they do in the morning, they fly out and have a look around where the best snow is. And then they take you up and, 
it was like the scenery, it's breathtaking and the snow and, and I really wasn't at the level to be able to do it, which was it's another good um, <laughs> snow skiing story, but it was just, incre- like, it was just incredible. Like, so you, I've been really... you went on your 220s or your 210s, were you? I know, yeah, they were, they were a lot shorter then. Like big, big powder, yeah, big powder skis and powder skis. And it's funny because the last, uh, the ski, this is a great thing about skiing. So when I started skiing at sort of 15, 16, 17, uh, by the time I was seventeen, I was skiing on two twenties. Yeah, right. And, yeah, and then by the time I started mogul skiing, so I was national Australian national mogul champion in uh, nineteen ninety two. And I was then on a pair of 180s. And when I was doing yeah. aerial skiing, I was jumping on a pair of 160s. So yeah. the whole, and the, they're, they're still quite narrow. Then sort of 10 years later that you went into those parabolics where they started to get wider and they sort of had the, the wide tail and the wide tip. But, um, yes, aren't you lucky? Aren't you yeah. lucky, Ruth? Well, the, the other thing, Kirsty and Simon, is just, I, I, still, I think there's three sports that you, you love to teach your kids. And, and I always say this, golf tennis and snow skiing because they're so technical yeah. and but they're also ones and interesting your comment Kirsty as well I, I think I've always thought they're ones if you learn at a really young age you can pack your tennis racket away your golf club away your, your skis away and then come back out and then you're able to do it really comp- competently and pick it up yeah. pretty quickly whereas I start at 25 and I've got you know, so hard, long levers, and I don't know what you're like, Simon. I know, I was going to say, well, we're swapping skiing stories, so I can remember, you know, my, my skis would go like this all the time with two legs, right? So, and you know, and I, I, am, I could be a ski. Justin and I, my brother, we might, might as well tie us to the bottom of your feet and go down. That's how, you know, how long we are. But on a, after I finished footy on a sales junket, I actually went to, um, went uh, over to um, Queenstown in, um, uh, in, in, in New Zealand, and we part of that was, uh, they had a couple of options, and we did learn snowboarding. And so they had yeah. this snow where they had the real learners, the really, really shallow slope, learner slope, with the conveyor belt that took you back up. And so I did, I did this learning. And I yeah. said, oh, this is great. I really like this. And I was getting balanced. And then they said, right, that's enough for the lesson. You've got two more hours. Do what you like. And I looked up at the big mountain again. Oh, why not? So I've got so I've gone from I've gone from a slope <laughs> of about this of about you know ten degrees yeah. to about forty five degrees, and I've gone up there and got off. And I got up, and of course, getting up on your on the you know on this um, snowboard, and I, I reckon if I had learnt it five or ten, I would have done a, a lot yeah. more. Yeah. Getting up on the angle was bad, and you got up, fell over, and got up, fell over, and got up, fell over, and I'm got to get. And this all of a sudden, it's getting close to leaving time. I said, I'm not even going to make it down the hill, let alone. <laughs> and finally, I got up, and I'm going at this magnificent speed, and I've got the balance. And all of a sudden, I said to myself, Now, how do I stop again? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, as you look back, it's that big curving turn, and you, well, I couldn't remember. I mean, you know, oh, buggers, I've got to stop. So I just let go, and I went like this down the hill, yeah. about, about 30, 40 metres, like you see in the ads, you know, you see in the movies. And I thought, really enjoyable, and that is enough. I've got to put it under arm and walk down the rest of the way. So, uh, but you're right, it, you know, it's one of those ones. I can remember being up there and seeing four year olds like, oh, on skis yeah. going around like they've been doing it for 10 years, and they're only four. So it was a. It's a fascinating experience. So, so um, and, Kirstie, yeah, when you say you started at four, when you say you started at four, I can see how that can really help you be yeah. much better later on. And what you said, Rosie, about golf. I mean, the first person that took me to play golf, I was in my twenties, and it was actually Trevor Barker. 
Sparks and I, and at some point we were playing golf. There was um, Trev, there was uh, Warney and Craig Devonport. I don't know if you know Devo. Oh, yeah, um, Devo. Yeah, yeah, Devo. Yeah. And the four of us, uh, but they gave me the love of golf. And I, I've always had a passion for golf, but I started it mm. too late. I would have loved to have started that earlier as well. Yeah. So. I yeah, get I think, what you're saying, but the kids. Yeah, I think I'm glad I played football because golf, tennis, and and skiing, I'm really terrible at. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I like how I found something. Now, just on that, now I want to talk a little bit more because there's some great stuff there. Um, the hardest part, apart from the knee injuries, the hardest part, Kirsty, of your game, of your sport. What was that for you? <clears throat> Gee, I, that's I don't I don't I think back straight away. I'm thinking only of positives and pluses. You know, oh, I. Good. I it, there wasn't prize money when I started, so financially it was a bit tough. Um, the first sponsor I ever had, uh, I spent four months overseas, accumulated the expenses. I'd, I'd taken out about a loan, a loan and uh, interest-free loan from the Ski Federation. Came back after four months, submitted my receipts to the sponsor and they'd gone bankrupt and um, I was then in debt for the first year. So it, it sort of spurred me on a bit. That was, that, financially it was always tough. Um, yeah. My parents weren't supportive of me when I first started. That was a bit, that was a bit tricky um, because my father had actually said to me, look, there are three reasons you won't succeed. You know, basically you're female, you're Australian and you're in a winter sport. You know, there's, what are the odds? That's, and, a, real, that's a real positive, positive <laughs> statement, isn't it? <laughs> it wasn't wrong, you know, let's be honest. Um, and, but that was the, the good thing was when I was at school, I had, I had a whole lot of teachers that were really supportive and encouraging me through education, sort of saying, you can do it, you're really smart and everything. I didn't believe them. So I didn't do very well academically. And then when I got out and I started skiing, I had so many people tell me that I'd never wasn't going to succeed and you know I thought that they were all insane in the same way that I thought the teachers were insane so it made no difference to me yeah right that's good and 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 Ruzi, now so many games with Fitzroy and of course the, the, at times the, the club struggle what about I want to talk I want to talk both of you a little bit later about your leadership positions you've been in but going through that time at Fitzroy when it was on the edge yeah, look, I probably Simon didn't realise when it happened and, and it probably wasn't until I got to Sydney that I realised how difficult it was. And I remember, I remember Purdy telling a story when he went to Collingwood and, and he tell, told the story they'd finished training one night and they went in, the, had, a, had a shower, then jumped in the spa and Purdy said to his teammates, oh, how good's this? And they looked at him like, what, what, how good's what? And Purdy was like, oh, just went out and had a spa after training. And they're sort of like, well, what, what do you mean? Fit, what happens at Fitzroy sort of thing. So I don't think it was until you actually left yeah, that you yeah. realised how difficult it was. And then when I look back on it, like I used to get phone calls from teammates, Ruzi, can you help? The club can't pay me. Yeah. I'm about to settle on a house. You know, I was captain of the club. Look, you know, can you make, can you make a phone call for me? Yeah, we, we actually as a group of players, not that we were trying to cause trouble, but I remember one year prior to the pre-season um, games starting, um, we gathered at my manager, Damon Smith, who you know, Damon's house, and there was about six or eight of us senior players. And all we wanted was a guarantee from the AFL that if we started the season, that we would get paid. And yes. we were going to actually boycott, not that we didn't want to play, we, we were going to boycott the first game of the, the NAB Cup or whatever it's called then, because we just wanted assurances yeah. that we were going to get paid. But when you were doing it, as you know, mate, you just put your head down, you bum up, you get the training because you're working during the day as well. So, yeah. again, it wasn't until – I remember the story of the Sydney Swans because, I mean, as you know, we used to get paid March 
July, December, like those three lump sum payments. Yeah. And I remember every time I get a payment from Fitzroy, and they're really respectful, but, oh, look, Rusey, can you wait a week? Can you wait yeah. another couple of weeks? So I get to Sydney and Tammy goes, well, when do you, you think you pay, you should ring up about your pay. And I'm like, yeah, all right, look, I'll ring up. And so I rang up the accountant. I said, oh, look, you know, it's, it's March the 2nd, 3rd, you know, I, I know I'm due on 1st of March. And she said, oh, have you checked your bank account? I'm like, what do, what do you mean? They have these things called automatic payments. It went straight in. It went straight into your bank, and I'm like, I didn't even know that it, that existed. It, it's you'd, never, you'd never seen it before. I've never seen it before. But but again, my point is, when you're doing it, you just do it. Yeah. You know, and you and you, and you field the phone calls with your teammates. Yeah. You, know, you, you you know you have your meeting at Wesley when the, when Leon Wegart says we're going to fold, we're going to go to Brisbane, yeah. or we're going to relocate or, or whatever, merge with the Melbourne Mason. You just do it and it's just part of it. But when I look back, I've got, as you know, I mean, the Fitzroy guys are super close. Yeah. I've got so much respect for that, that team, the footy club, because of all the stuff that we had to endure. No, it's fantastic. Now, now um, out of all those, Kirsty, out of all the things you've done, what's the best? And I want, this is in the sport, before we go past sport. So you've got, you've got, you're a 1908 out Australian freestyle competition you've got first in that you've got a um a gold medal in the um freestyle world ski, ski championship in 97 i mean there's a whole lot of things there is there anything that you just stand out and said that's the best or that's epitome or just does it all blur together no no i think the thing that i look back now and i'm really proud of because it's got better context is when i was named flag bearer for the oh, 1994 yeah. winter olympics in yeah, Lillian. beautiful and i think it's such an honor and i didn't um, when you're an athlete, uh, well, for me, um, it's hard to understand the historical sense of what it is that you're creating. Mm. You, you know, you're sort of living in the moment. And when I look back now and the, the feeling um, of pride that I have of being an Olympian, a winter Olympian, a successful um, skier, but most of all representing my country in such a beautiful way. Yeah, so that's, that's, I, uh... I think that was a real highlight. No, that's a great Kirsty, highlight. Do you, do, you, do you think, Kirsty, you realised how big you were? Because it's funny when, like, Simon and I would, like, you sort of transcended the sport. Few yeah. few people are able to do that. But I've got so much respect. And But you were bigger than the sport. You were, you, did, you, did you understand how big you were? No, you not, a, not at all, Rosie. It's a great question because I... I felt very much, uh, you're talking about finances, and I used the money that I, whatever money I earned, was what we then put back into pay for other athletes to come overseas. So basically I was paying for the team. Yeah. And the sponsorship that I yeah. got, I divided amongst all of the athletes so that everybody, like we had a, mm -hmm. a sponsorship with Qantas and they actually only sponsored me, but all of the money yeah. to all of the athletes. So um, no, I, I probably would have pushed a bit harder for change in a lot of ways that, and that's more political, that's probably the, that political um, sense that I have. Yeah. And no, I really felt um, uh, that there was a bit of misuse in, at times where the administration got the benefits of me taking the risk and me putting, you know, the effort in. Yeah, that's And good. I didn't know. And, and, but, but it's interesting because now it's always you have the luxury now of looking back. So with an yeah. older head, yeah. so if I knew what I knew now, I could have done that. You know, that's, yeah. And when, yeah. when I finished, or is it, this is another thing that, and Simon, you know, when I finished, I was a little bit lost. I, I really was coming, uh, I didn't 
retire. Um, I got injured and I really didn't recover from it. So I applied for three years to the Sports Commission to become a coach in my own sport in Australia. Mm. And I turned down a job from China. They wanted me and I said no. And incredibly, I got turned down in for the, the coaching position in my own sport because, and I couldn't understand it, it was basically a, a coaching spot, a scholarship that came through the Sports Commission. Mm. And I didn't understand my own sport had to endorse me for the, the Sports Commission to give me the, the opportunity and they wouldn't. And it's good in a way because it then pushed me into going into politics because that was a really big motivating factor was I, you can't change things from outside, you need to change them inside. Um, but I, I really felt quite aggrieved by the fact that um, my own sport didn't want me at that stage. Did, did, was there a little case of, as you were saying before, you almost were bigger than the sport. Did they feel that and sort of go, we don't really want her because she's too big for us and we can't control her? Yeah, someone, I don't think it's too big. It's that I was too vocal. Oh, by, yeah. Oh, by that stage, I was, you know, 30 um, and I've got my own business. I've got my own money. I, you know, I, I really had my own life and was running it aside from the actual main sport. I wasn't reliant on them. And you can't, if you're very vocal, it's very hard for people to want you to you know, incorporate you into their organisation when they can't control you. Yes. So I've got that now. Um, I don't regret, you know, having an opinion, but I probably had very, you know, 20-year-old women think they know everything and they're very hard to deal with. So I, I don't think they made a bad decision. <laughs> 20-year-old 20 20 men are the same, don't worry. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't see that there was there needed to be at times some uh, political correctness. Yeah, um, that's I good, would just good. come in and, and go... <laughs> yeah. No, good, good. And, Ruthie, just on that type of thing, you, you weren't the first, from what I can gather and remember, you weren't the first pick for coach of swans when you got the job. And there was almost a grant, there, there was almost a plan in place, but there was this groundswell underneath saying, and hang on, here's the bloke we think is the right bloke. And tell us about that. Yeah, it was strange, Simon, because when I took over was when Rocket left and I had 10 weeks to go. And you sort of, one of the things I remember asking is, look, if, is it just for 10 weeks or, you know, you're going to give me the job for longer term? They said, nah, nah, if you take it now, it's 10 weeks and we can't promise you anything. So it is a little bit of a risk at the start because it's, as you well know, it's such a precarious position. So you're sort of, you're, you're beginning your career and potentially ending it with one decision. Go. But yeah, yeah so I, but I decided to take the job because I knew the players really well and I had a lot of faith in them. I'd played with the guys. And so then we, we sort of really connected as a coach sort of player group and we won six of our last sort of 10 games, including a, a good game at the end of the year. We beat Richmond, but the swan song for, for Andrew Dunkley and Paul Kelly. And I remember the players, I just walked down the field because it was Kel Dunks' sort of day and then the players came around me. And by that stage, I think there was a bit of a groundswell. The, the media had said that um, Terry Wallace had left the Bulldogs and looked like he was going to be appointed. Yes. So it was a really strange time for Sydney because Sydney's more of a, a rugby league town and rugby union. So all of a sudden, it just became an AFL town for this sort of two or three week period. And... And people were sort of jumping behind me and, and the players. And it was really... But, I, but again, when you're in it, you sort of... Our seconds were still in the finals. I actually came I came down and took our seconds on a tour of uh, Victoria during finals because I really wanted to give them the impression of what the young players, what finals footy was like. And I went, yeah. we went to Windy Hill. We went to the Hall of Fame at Windy Hill. And my old coach, Robert Shaw, was there at the time and he invited us in. 
and 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 again another great story. But Essendon were playing in the finals, so we've walked through the. There was, I had about ten young players, and we walked through the change rooms, and I could, all of a sudden I saw Sheeds, and I said to Shuri, "Hey, are you guys? You see, we're just about to have a team meeting. We're going out to train." So I look, you look, but we'll get out of your way, and we'll get in the grandstand. At this moment, Sheeds looks at me, and I thought, "Oh yeah, no, I'm in, trouble. I'm, in <laughs> I'm in massive trouble here." And he goes, Rosie, what are you doing? I said, oh, look, sorry, mate. We'll get out of your way. I've just got 10 young guys. Um, I just want to show them. What, blah, blah. He goes, oh, do you want me to talk to him? Before, yes. I, before I could say, oh, mate, don't worry about it, he grabs him in the, the, the theatre, takes him in, shuts the door. And I'm standing there going, oh, how cool is this? This is unbelievable. Like Kevin Sheedy's talking to these young boys. All of a sudden, Dustin Fletcher walks out of the table tennis room and goes, oh, g'day, Rosie. Have you seen Sheeds? I said, yeah, he's just gone in the room with my guy. Heard he comes out and says, I said, well, what's he supposed to be doing? He goes, mate, we're supposed to have a team meeting right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, this is unbelievable. Like, so when, you, when you're immersed in what you're doing, as you said, like with Terry and, and the club always, yeah, they've never admitted that Terry got the job. And then eventually, as history says, I, I did get the job. So I was... It was a yeah. It was a really strange period of time, and I had to present to the board, which took about four or five hours. Yeah. It turned out to be the best thing I did, and then obviously got the job after that. It's the, I, yeah, go go. I was just wondering because in for me now my focus is less on coaches and more on surgeons, and the younger the better because they're newly qualified. <laughs> but in football, it seems like with coaching, the older you are, the the more you're respected and revered. It's the young guys that are really struggling to break in. As coaches, I think Kirsty, the gap is just so great now. That that's the hardest thing, and, and I've talked about it a lot. I mean, when I when I took the role at Sydney, yeah, you know, I was a, an assistant coach, and I had a certain role. Now that role is still pretty similar. So the assistant coaching role is almost identical to what I did. But when I took over senior coach at Sydney, we only had three assistants. I think one full time medical guy, one full time fitness guy. Now, you know, you've, you've got six, seven, eight coaches. You've got three or four S&C and medical staff. You've got the media. You've got 18 teams. So the, the, the assistant coaching role stayed the same, but the senior coaching role has just become more of a, a management role. And I remember going to Melbourne, and I remember saying to Josh Marnie after about week three, I said, Josh, there's no way known you could have put a, a young coach in this role. It's, yes. just, it's just far too difficult. And I think, I think Kirsty, that's... Probably the biggest problem the AFL has to face. How do we upskill these assistant coaches? How do we give them extra tools around relationship building, empathy, um, all the stuff, Simon, you and I talk about regularly in, yes, in leadership? Yeah. And how do you upskill them? Because they're just not getting the skill. And it's similar in business, to be perfectly frank. And, yeah. and that's the challenge. Not necessarily that they're young, but it's hard to give them the skill set required to become a senior coach. And it's a double-edged if you don't give them the skill set, like if you don't give them the job, they'll never develop the skill set. So it's a, a really interesting time in football. Yeah, and it's, it's really because Essen, I'm on the board of Essen, we've just gone through that a change of coaches. So you've got, you know, you've almost got the the uh, assistant coach in waiting. And you and you went through that with Melbourne too. You, and I think yeah. that's the idea. Yeah. What, and you make a really good point that 
I reckon most coaches, it's say, you know, if I've been in any big sport, can coach. They can coach the players, but it's all the other stuff they've got to deal with. They know the yeah. skills. They've got to build relationships with about four times as many people as, say, the footy club down the road or the hockey club down the road or, say, the little ski team. All of a sudden, you've got to say, well, I've got to deal with them when the media having a go at them, when they're not, you know, all that complexity doubles and then layers and layers of more complexity, and they've got to deal with that. And that's... that's um, you know, that, what's that I was saying I use regularly, experience is what you get just after you need it. And so yeah. they do, you do something, and, oh, yeah, what have I learned from that? And unfortunately, in sometimes coaches doing that are going to get themselves in trouble because they've done something they can learn from, but other people are oh, no, you can't do that. Well, how do you? You make that good point. How do you develop people to the point where, and I, th I think it's very much you can do that. Uh, I'm just not sure if people understand that you have to take time because uh, in, in, in times of in times of change um, and growth, a lot of businesses just get the first the best person at their job and make them a leader, and they don't give them the training yeah. around it, and that yeah. makes it even more complex. Isn't it? Tom, one of the other things you've, you're making me think about is um, the similarities between athletes, coaches, politicians, yeah. which is you you have a relatively short career, whatever it is, and it may be with a club, Rosie, or you know if you're a successful coach, you still have to deal with that transition into different teams or into different clubs. But as a, as a politician, you get elected, you, you then at some point don't get re-elected and you have no skills to deal with that next phase. As an athlete, yeah. you know, you're competing, you're training. From the day that I got injured and I stopped competing and training, I really didn't have any skills to, to deal with that immediate aftermath. And I'm thinking as a coach too, the difficulty and nervousness of taking a job, the implications of what that means in terms of your career, suddenly your future may be being decided by other people and losing your job. And what you do when you're, you know, where you're representing your family and your stability of life and your goals and aspirations and yourself, of, your sense of self and how challenging that is for, for all of us, but how little attention we're actually still putting into that phase. Yeah. And I think too, so I mean, Simon and I were lucky, and I say this, not that I wouldn't want to play now, but we did. We were able to get another skill set because we were part-time. And I think yeah. that's the difference, Kirsty. You were on the world stage. And that's why I've got so much respect for athletes like yourself because Simon and I were allowed to go to work and I lived in Donbow and I went down to Junction Oval and I came home at night and, you know, and then we'd work during the day. So we were able to gather another skill set, another, mm. another vocation, which to be perfectly frank, in the early days was our main, our main vocation yeah. was not football. It was actually what else we were, we were doing. So we had this other avenue. Now, regardless of what athlete it is, whether it's a swimmer or a football player or a basketballer, their focus is on the sport. So it becomes even more catastrophic when they lead that sport, you know, mm. and, and, the, and the ability to upskill them during that period becomes so, so important. And I, and I imagine Simon, as a, as a director of Essendon, that's a big part of the conversation. You know, how do we make... It's a really interesting, but it's a really interesting one because you talk to young players, and this would be young people in any sport, and both male, female, in between, whatever. The um, what do you, you know, like, and I say to young players, well, what else are you doing, you know? Because yeah. the idea is there should be a little bit of time being to something else because it's a short career. And I know young players say, look, I can't think about anything. I'm too tired all the time, especially pre. I go to yeah. training, do all this, go to meetings, think this, do this. I go home and I fall asleep. And what about the AFLW um, women? How many of them do you think are only playing, playing footy? I will guarantee oh, 90 well, no, of them. 
Yeah, ninety-nine percent of them will be working other jobs. So football to to pay for their capacity to play football, and that's where I think that the the, the men in particularly administrative roles at the moment in in football have a capacity to mentor these these women into exactly that, how to transition into full-time athletes and still maintain some skills that will be useful. But at the moment, I feel like there's a, a bit of discrepancy and siloed view of what the men are doing and have done in their history and what they've learned and what the women are doing. So I'd love to see a li- little bit more balance there. That's, that's, that's a really interesting point too because, um, and it's, oh, look, we could spend a whole lot of time on that because coaching, coaching the female team is not exactly like coaching the men's team. Right, for a whole lot of reason, it's, it's not inequality. It's like the apple and the orange. They're both both of great value. They're slightly different. So, you know, for, for things, they're not they're not going to kick as long as the men for starters. You know, like the golfers, the, the female golfers are magnificent, but they don't necessarily kick as uh, hit the ball as long as men. But they still have this great sport that is slightly different, but still great. Same with basketball, and with uh, with the football that you put that in that they're part time as well but they're trying to get better. Then we're throwing COVID in as well, which has messed up everything. It has become more com- complex, but that I always talk you know, people about old sports people. Uh, and, you know, I know sometimes modern sport is worried about the old sports person coming in and telling them how to do it. But I'm really interested in about getting old sports people, not to tell them how to play or how to ski, but teach them how did you handle it? How did you handle it when you lost? How did you handle it when you, you, you know, had an injury? How did you handle it when you abused by people? How, were you, you know, how did you handle fame? That stuff that goes around it, that mentoring stuff that learns, keeps, gives you other skills that makes, it, you know, makes that, that whole person more, you know, more whole in what they're doing in their sport. I think that's becoming, and as sport becomes such more focused by the media, they be, those type of skills are becoming more and more important. I yeah, think yeah, I've written spoken and authorised by Simon Men, sorry. I think the other thing about that, Simon, it's so transferable. I think the more that I get involved in the corporate world, yes. I always see sports people have a, such a great understanding of team, yes. such a great understanding of discipline, such a great understanding of sacrificing for each other. So I think that I think the opportunity Sometimes we separate them a bit too much and, yes. you know, whether that's um, men's footy, women's footy, whatever it is. But what I think, if, we, if we're always working on the whole person, then the, whether, whether they're at a footy club or whether they're at, um, you know, AMP where I first started, if you work on the whole person, everyone's going to be better, you know. Yes. A, rising, a rising tide lifts all boats. But too often, you know, the, the bad clubs just focus on, the kicks, marks, and handballs, yes. you know, make them a better person mm. and you'll transition a lot easier into outside of your your chosen sport because you'll learn a lot of skills. So be careful we don't get too insular on yes. um, just the, the sport. Yeah. And it'd be interesting, Kirsty, on your take on, on the individuality of what you did. How, how did you see that, like, transitioning did that make you a more selfish person, do you think? Or how did, how did you deal with that? I think when I was a skier, I was really selfish. And yeah. whether that be time for friends, time for, you know, a, a you know, partner, a boyfriend, or time for family, time for, you know, significant events like birthdays and Christmas, weddings, births, you know, all of that was on the back burner for me. Mm. I really didn't care about it. And to mm. me, it was just about what I needed to do to, to get to where I wanted to go. 
Um, but I, I think also my identity was so wrapped up in who I was as a skier and much of that came from what other people thought of me. Thank God social media wasn't mm. like, you know, yes. now back then because I think it can become all too consuming. And uh, I remember <laughs> I would have been, I don't know, maybe about 26 and I went into a nightclub um, might have been Chasers or something down here, you know, big, big nightclub. And it had been just after the Olympics and I'd fallen at the Olympics. And when I say just a few months after the Olympics and I'd come back to Melbourne and I'd walked into this nightclub, never had to pay for anything. You know, it was yeah. such a great, great time of life. And there was this group of guys and they were all really cool looking. And I, I can remember walking in and the guy, one of the guys at the centre saw me and, went, and somebody went, that's Kirsty Marshall. And then this guy just went, kind of sort of started walking towards me and then fell on the ground and went, yeah, I'm Kirsty Marshall, you know. <laughs> and I was mortified and I just upped and turned and left. And I, I can remember feeling that um, it was who I was and it took me a while to establish that, that sense of what you're talking about, Rosie, about being determined and having a good work ethic and being... Um, it's, you know, I'm actually a good team player in all of the time that I was providing money for other athletes or making sure that the coach that I was employing coached everybody else, whatever it was. Um, and the pride that I had of wearing that Olympic uniform, the pride that I have of wearing my OAM um, badge, you know, I, um, I think I, I, it took me a few years. So yeah, I'm right. very glad that I got there eventually. But uh, at the moment, you've got to learn it on your own. Love to have more of a program where we're assisting, the, you know, everybody yeah. in that. That time. Yeah. Now, we, we, I'd like to try, but you could go on forever. We try and keep these to a certain time frame. <laughs> that, that, um, that premiership for, the, for Sydney, for the Swans, for South Melbourne, all that inclusive, that must have been just great. Yeah, it was, it was incredible, mate. I mean, having played with Fitz, Fitzroy, and we had some really good success in the early 80s, as you well know. We had some great teams, you know, with Bernie and, and Gary Wilson and all that, and we played in a couple of good finals against you guys and won one, lost one. But then post-86, we sort of didn't have a lot of success, and I was really lucky to go to Sydney when Tony Lockett turned up. I mean, Plugger was incredible for incredible, the brand, yeah. incredible for the game. And so we played in the grand final in 96, but I, as much as I would have loved to have win it as a player, I don't think the club was ready in 96 yeah. to, to take advantage of a premiership. So then we played in finals a lot under Rocket. Then we played in 2003. So I think by the time 2005 came around after, on the back of Tony and what he'd done for the game, there was an enormous amount of interest in the game in Sydney. So the build-up was huge. And obviously South Melbourne speaks for itself. So I don't think I realised the enormity until we'd won it. So coming down... You know, and, and at that stage, 2005, when we won, the um, coach's box was on the other side of the ground. So you actually walked through the crowd, yes. not behind, which was, I'm glad it happened then, to be perfectly frank. But to see, to, so I remember the stages. I remember thinking to myself, I was consciously thinking the night before, look, if we lose, this is what I'm going to say, and this is how I'm going to behave. And if we win, I really want to take it all in. I really yeah. want to be present in that moment. So we stayed in the coach's box for a little bit, congratulated Sir. the walk down, saw the faces on the on all the fans, walked out, saw all the people that put so much money into the club, you know, during that period when they mm -hmm. were privately owned. Then Barry Round and Dennis Carroll and Paul Kelly gave me the cup. And I think that's when it hit me. It, it wasn't about that group of players or that group of people at 2005. It really was about 72 years of history. Yeah. And I don't think until... It happened. Then we went 
that night to the dinner. Then the next day we went to the Lakeside Oval. Then on the Monday, we had this parade in Sydney. I remember getting in the car with Barry Hall and, and I said to Hawley, mate, there might be anyone come out and cheer for us. This could be like really embarrassing. And I was blown. We were both blown away. Like a number of Sydney people that came yeah. out, went to the town hall, got the key to the city, et cetera, et cetera. So, mate, it's just enormous. You know, it, yeah. it was incredible how much it, it impacted so many different people. Yeah, and, and never under never underestimate Sydney uh, Sydney siders winning in Melbourne. Don't worry about that. They'll come out from everywhere when that happened. <laughs> and and, uh, and Kirsty, just quickly, not not listen. Trying to make it quickly, but you're becoming a politician. So from the sports person, and then taking that because I was my brother. My brother Justin moved into uh, politics. I got asked twice and said no thanks, <laughs> but you said yeah, I'm going into it. And and how did you see that? And how do you feel about that? Well, I was really quite heavily involved in politics within um, winter sports anyway, and I was a director on the OWI, the Olympic Winter Institute board, and um, I'd been heavily involved in, um, you know, VIS and all sorts of different areas um, on the athletes' representatives um, on FIS and, you know. Um, so for me, it was quite a, a good transition because, as I said, I was I was really stimulated by the fact that I couldn't find a job within the winter sports industry in Australia. And um, I knew that the decision-making that was at that top level uh, I didn't, didn't sit well with me. Mm. And I knew that the two areas that they were really quite dependent upon was the federal government and the state government for funding. So, or, you know, political assistance in that way. Yes. So um, Justin Madden was the Minister for Sport and I knew him through um, footy. And so I just gave him a call and said, can we catch up for a chat? And it wasn't because I, at that stage, wanted to be a state representative. But I wanted to become involved and actually really liked a lot of the initiatives that, that Justin had been doing. Um, so I just sort of was thinking I would possibly be more involved and a bit more proactive in that way. But the opportunity came up by Steve Brax offering me to run for a seat that they couldn't get a, a nominee for. And so timing is everything in politics. Timing is everything. I've got a thick skin, so uh, those two <laughs> things work well together. Well, that's, that's the thing. If uh, Being involved in sport, and uh, like Justin said, it, uh, it's, um, it, he was uh, made for <laughs> politics. You know, very easy entry because when you get booed by your own uh, supporters in football, it's very easy to move into yeah. politics. You know, when you've had a big loss, etc. So, look, look, people... Um, uh, we've come to a bit. We go to about this long, so it makes it uh, fair to everybody. Uh, look, thank you very much for your time. Uh, you're great, great sports people, great people, and uh, uh, great examples of uh, doing well after your sporting career as well. So, thank uh, Kirsty Marshall, OAM. I should salute and stand up. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you very much for your time. And Paul Ruse, Paul, thank you very much for your time too. Two great people, two great sports people. Thank you very much for your time. Simon, thank you. Thanks, Simon. Good on you. Rosie, a real honour to be doing it with you. Um, uh, a little bit of history that I'll be able to now show my kids. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks.